Appreciate all your patience and enduring as we cover so much information. I know it's a lot. We're going to pray you can kind of digest it later on. And really just be encouraged. I was telling someone earlier, no one's going to remember everything that we go through today. We're covering so much information so quickly. But be encouraged. As Christians, there are answers. And so get the resources to further equip yourself. If you're a non-believer, to be challenged with that. That's kind of the hope with all this. And, of course, if you've got any questions, feel free to catch me later on after this talk tomorrow or even online using facebook or twitter or something like that we're going to jump into the last talk the last session for today so let's talk i love doing especially in our day and age uh and it just resonates with me on a lot of different levels um but to talk about one blood one race and this is a really big issue in our day and age and we talk about at the museum i thought i showed you the arc earlier here's what the museum looks like in case you're curious about that turn it down a bit it's right by, it's about 40 minutes away from the Ark Encounter, same ministry answers in Genesis. And when you're at the museum, we're walking you through biblical history, answering the skeptical questions of this age, over 75,000 square feet. Each ticket for the museum is worth two days because you can spend two days easy at the museum. There's a planetarium, there are speakers speaking twi- twice a day typically, there are workshops. All, there's movie theaters, there's different shows going on, all sorts of stuff, Snakes Alive program, Plants, uh, I mean, just all kinds of cool stuff happening there, really, really phenomenal. The, it's just, the excellency is just incredible. The guys and gals got us brought together to do their different crafts at their ability is phenomenal. It's just so well done. So if you ever get a chance, I know it's a long ways away from here, I get that, but if you're in that area close to Cincinnati, Go check them out. It'll be well worth your time. They're phenomenal. God's just using these in great ways. And I often say, literally, it's just God working. We're hanging on to his coattails, right, as he does some amazing things with these different things. And that's all it's for, giving answers to give the answer. And again, we've talked about why it's so important so we can defend the faith where it's being attacked today. Colossians 2 says it like this. I think I love this verse in, the, in relation to what we're talking about. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on what? The human tradition and the basic principles of this world. Think uniformitarianism, naturalism, rather than on Christ. Be sure that you are not taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now we stand on God's word to give defense. And so as we do that, there are certain questions we need to be able to answer, and this is one of those questions. If we do come from Adam and Eve, then how do you explain all these different people groups all around the world? And again, remember, these people groups exist in the present with their variations. As far as how we get them, they must be interpreted with a set of assumptions about the unseen past. And again, wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. It's a worldview issue. But these worldviews are polar opposites. I mean, you could not get more different. Within the evolutionary worldview, all humans come from ape-like ancestor from the past. And so this would have to be grandpa. And you saw Grandma earlier, all right? <laughs> and so if evolution is true, we come from ape-like ancestor. Maybe some people are more evolved than others. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But we start with the Bible. We build our thinking from God's Word. Again, the eyewitness account of the Creator Himself. Then we re- uh, realize that, well, according to the Bible, God made Adam and Eve, and we all descend from Adam and Eve. That means how many races are there? One, the human race. We are all related. I'm just here for a family get-together. What's up? All right? We're just hanging out. Come over for some barbecue later on. Whatever. It's just we are hanging out. And those change the way you look at people. It really does. We kind of start with that as your starting assumption. But these two views, guys, could not be more different. I'm reminded of the story of a little girl who went up to her daddy one day. She said, hey, daddy, where did people come from? 
He said, well, honey, God made Adam and Eve, and, and they had kids, and their kids had kids, and eventually you get all the people. She said, okay. So she went to her mom. Mom, where did people come from? Her mom, something thought for me, and she said, well, honey, you see, uh, there was these ape-like creatures that lived a long, long time ago, millions of years ago, and they began to change, and they evolved, changed over long periods of time, and eventually they became humans. She said, okay. So she went back to her dad. She said, hey, dad, wait, I'm confused. You told me that God made us, and mom told me we come from monkeys. Who's right? He said, honey, that's easy. I told you about my side of the family, and she told you about hers. <laughs> yeah, your worldview matters, doesn't it? Um, yeah, wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. And guys, this biblical history that we come from Adam and Eve, it is really, really important because, as I mentioned earlier, the Bible teaches some vital things in relation to salvation to this history. You see, once again, the Bible is clear. It was man's sin that brought death into this world. First Corinthians 15, we read that, as in Adam all die. Adam, a real person, brought death into the world. That's why we all die. So Christ became a real man that we all might live through him if we repent and trust in him as Savior. He became a life-giving spirit. Jesus is called the last Adam. Why? Because he paid the price of the first Adam. And the Bible is clear, only descendants of Adam can be saved. But we're all descendants, so we're all good there, right? That's why it's important to understand. But that's also why we get really kind of frustrated and up, upset to a large degree, and hopefully in a good way, uh, when we hear certain teachings that are very prevalent today within much of Christianity uh, from people like Peter Enns. Again, just attacking the false uh, teaching that's undermining biblical authority. He said in his book, The Evolution of Adam, he's a Christian professor and theologian, if you don't know who he is, works for Biologos. But he says that evolution demands that the special creation of Adam and Eve, as described in the Bible, is not literal history. But again, if that was not real history, then where did man come from? Where did death come from? Why is death the consequence of sin? Why is Jesus called the last Adam? doesn't make any sense. And then we see stuff like this from Christianity Today on their cover. The search for historical Adam. Doesn't their Adam look like he could star for a Geico commercial? <laughs> right? Just so easy. Um, and then inside, they quote many Christian leaders, many of which unfortunately said something like this. Carl Garberson, unfortunately, the concepts of Adam and Eve as literal first couple and ancestors of all humans simply do not fit the evidence. Actually, I don't know if you recognize this or not, but uh, you may. it's sad to hear that for many Christian colleges, many biblical seminaries, there's a debate raging right now as to whether or not Adam and Eve were even real people to begin with. Because so many have compromised with the clear teaching of God's word. Why? Trying to import man's ideas into the, into the Bible. So sad to see. But because of this compromise, we see a lot of, a lot of quotes from guys like Dr. Tremper Longman III, professor of biblical studies at Westmont College. He just represents the norm. Not picking on him, just the teaching. But he represents the norm of what's happening in many of our colleges and Christian or in seminaries today. That's the way he says there are two different clips. Second, it's equally important to send a message to the youth in the church that the Bible is not at odds with what they are learning in their biology classes about evolution in school. So you can squeeze evolution and the Bible together is what he's saying. He goes on to say this. My understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 is high-style literary prose narrative leads me to conclude that it's not necessary that Adam be a historical individual for this text to be without error in what it intends to teach. But again, no Adam? Where's the origin of sin? How do we understand death? Why is Jesus called the last Adam? 
We could repeat this, but you get the idea. And here's the bottom line. Even though many Christians don't understand why this issue is so important, you know who gets it the best? The atheists, the non-believers. They understand this is really, really important. We need to learn from them on this issue. This particular atheist says this from the American atheist. No Adam and Eve means no need for a savior. It also, it also means the Bible cannot be trusted as a source of clear, literal truth. It's completely unreliable. Why? Because it all begins with a myth and built on that as a basis. No fall of man means no need for atonement and no need for a redeemer. You see, truly, biblically, both atoms are essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They recognize that. The question is, will we? So, if we do recognize the importance of this issue, we're going to stand on God's word. And there are certain questions we need to be able to answer that are flying around in our culture today in regards to these sorts of issues. Questions like, if we all come from Adam and Eve, then here's a real popular one. Then where did Cain get his wife? You ever heard that one? I thought about it. And it's a really, honestly, it's a very good question. It is a thought out question. We should be able to answer it. So if you're kind of wondering about this question, if you're not sure, here's what happens. Got Genesis 1 through 3. Eventually, Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. And then Cain kills Abel. And then Cain goes off. And in chapter 4, says Cain knew his who? His wife. And immediately people say, but wait a minute. Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. He went off and knew his wife. Who did he marry? It's a legitimate question. This question has been asked for a really long time. Even back in the famous Scopes Monkey Trial, uh, William Jennings Bryan represented Christianity, and he could not answer the question to a listening world. It was pretty sad at the time. But we can't pick on him too much because most Christians today cannot answer this question. I'll give you a quick example of this. I want to show you a clip from a, a guy on Fox News who at least, to a lot of people, represents Christianity, uh, as you see him. And uh, I want you to hear his response and, again, recognize uh, how, why this is such a foundational issue, important issue, and many Christians can't answer is what we're showing here. <laughs> if, if God created Adam and Eve and they had Cain and Abel, with who, that should be with whom, exactly did Cain yeah. and Abel create children with? In other words, how did Adam and Eve's kids have kids? Whoa. <laughs> uh, that just blow your mind. I didn't get it. Bobby. I didn't get it. How did Adam and Eve have kids? No, how did their kids have If they had Cain and Abel right. and, oh, and no, I get and it. no okay. girls... Okay. You know what? That's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> it's a great question. You know what? I think I'm going to have to call the Pope on this one. Uh-oh. Um, are you doubting your you faith what? now? You are. We go to the Pope line. Lifeline. <laughs> you know, there is a... There's a <laughs> this is an embarrassing moment for me. This is a tough moment. This is a tough question. It's a serious biblical sure, question. Absolutely. I should be able to answer absolutely. it like this. Come on. The fact is that, you know, we don't know exactly how things happened. You know, it's like, um, did, Adam, did uh, Adam have a belly button? Mm. You know, that's a whole other question. Sure. I, I don't know, quite honestly. But what we do know is that um, from individuals who decided that they did or did not want to follow the will of God came the rest of us. And Adam and Eve decided, you know what, we're not going to follow God. And we're, we, we want to do things our own way. And that's what we do so often in our lives. And I think the great lesson here is not whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons and not whether exactly how it all happened, you know, but rather, what can we learn? What can we learn? <laughs> you guys are laughing. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're not answering. Well, you are so avoiding the Can I just summarize what he just said? I don't know the answer to that historical, legitimate question, but don't worry about it. Just trust in Jesus anyway. Yeah. Isn't that it? 
Well, when people ask that question, they're asking, but how can I trust in Jesus if the Bible's history is plainly wrong? It doesn't make any sense. So how do we answer this question? There is a really good answer. It's not that hard. We do understand the Bible. Adam is the first man. No doubt about that. Eve is the mother of all the living. We all come from Adam and Eve. The Bible says, Acts 17, 26, we are all of one blood. The Bible's clear on this. So if that is the case, and somebody's read through Genesis chapter 4, and they're trying to figure out who did Cain marry, they're struggling over this, there's a great biblical concept to remember, that the best commentary on the Bible is always the what? The Bible. So if you're in Genesis 4 and you're wondering who did Cain marry, here's the answer. You flip the page over. You go to Genesis chapter 5. It's so cool. We read this, that Adam lived for 800 years. He had other sons and what? Daughters. Lots of them. Actually, Jewish tradition says Adam and Eve had around 33 sons and 23 daughters. 56 kids. But when you're living for 900 years and have perfect bodies, why not? Right? Would not be a problem. But that would mean originally, originally, brothers married who? And the girl said, (laughs) right? (laughs) And before you say you're from Kentucky, I knew it. Hold on. (laughs) Give me a second, all right? (laughs) Actually, not from Kentucky. I do live there now. But anyway, no. Let's answer this question. Can you marry your relation? Yes, no, probably only after counseling. (laughs) The answer is actually yes. Actually, you must marry your relation. If you're not marrying your relation, you're not marrying a human. Then you've really got problems. Amen? That's a whole different issue altogether. Actually, Abraham was married to his half-sister, and it was not a problem. It was not until the time of Moses in the book of Leviticus, 2,500 years after creation, that God stepped in and said, no longer shall you marry a close relative. First 2,500 years was not a problem to marry a close relative. Then Leviticus, God says, don't do it anymore. And some say, okay, well, that answers the question, but why was it okay to marry a close relative in the beginning and then not okay after a while? Well, to understand the answer to this question, it's actually through that word, it's called sin. But to fully comprehend this, I need you guys to do something for me. I need you to think poodle. <laughs> and why poodles? Why poodle? Well, because poodles are messed up. <laughs> all right, just look at that poor thing. What's going on there? All right. They're full of things called mutations in your genome. They mess things up. Poodles have a bunch of mutations in their genome. And actually, people like poodles. We have mutations in our genome. And today, we've got a lot of accumulation of these mutations over the last millennia, a couple of millennia. So we have a lot of mutations in our genome today. It's called genetic load. It's a real problem. So here's why you don't marry a close relative today. Because if I were to marry a close relative today, it becomes very likely we have similar genetic codes with similar mutations in that code. And if we get married and pass on the copy of that mutation from both of us to our kid and our offspring, it becomes likely that child is born with a birth defect, right? So we, get a, we marry someone further away in relation to us, so we get a good gene to mask a bad gene to keep the birth defect from becoming obvious and coming to the scene, being part of the child's life. So it makes good sense. So that's why we do that today. But in the beginning, it was not a problem. Think about it biblically. When God made Adam and Eve, they were genetically perfect, pre-programmed from the hand of God, no mutations in their genome. 
what did they look like, right? Adam had to be like 6'3 and jacked, right? Ripped. <laughs> Eve, you know, whatever. She had to be gorgeous. What, more important than that, what, did, what could they do thinking-wise, intellectually, mathematically, musically? They were genetically perfect. And also think about it. Adam was married to his rib. Talk about closely related, all right? <laughs> Just throw that out there if you think about it. And so... Not a problem to marry a close relative in the beginning. And then even after man's sin and death and the curse entered this world as a result. That's your origin of mutations. That's true. But the mutations would have been few in number to begin with and would accumulate over the years. And for the first 2,500 years, not that many mutations, most likely within the human genome. No problem marrying a close relative. And then after 2,500 years, God steps in. Book of Leviticus tells Moses, okay, stop. Mutations have accumulated to a detrimental point. Let's slow down this process of genetic load, most likely, so no longer marry a close relative. Really easy to understand biologically, genetically, and biblically if we just stand on God's word. And some will say, okay, well, that makes sense. But then still, how do we explain all these different people groups with these different traits all around the world if we all come from Adam and Eve? And we've got some really good biblical answers to that, which we'll get to here in a bit. But before we look at the Bible's explanation, let's look at the evolutionary one. Because if you embrace this idea, ideas have consequences. You see, with the evolutionary worldview, all life shares a common ancestor. You're equal to worms and monkeys, bananas, even nuts, as we saw before. And they evolved onward and upward. Humans today share a common ape-like ancestor from the past. Uh, it would make sense, though, that some might be more evolved than others in reference to humans. In Darwin's second book, The Descent of Man, he applied evolutionary thinking to the human race, and he predicted this. He said at some future period, the civilized races of men will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races of men. If you had to guess, according to Darwin, who were the civilized races? Caucasian. Who were the savages? Anybody darker, right, more or less? You see, he had this particular idea, more or less, of the human evolution. You have these different. We have a common ape ancestor. Some people are more evolved than others, and others are closer to the ape-like ancestor. Therefore, some humans will be superior, more evolved than others. And by the way, let me just say this. Did Darwin invent racism? What's the origin of racism through that word? Sin. But what? Evolution did was give people in their minds, some of them, a scientific justification for their racism. Stephen Jay Gould said this in his book, biological arguments for racism may become before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of the evolutionary theory. And guys, the consequences of embracing this worldview are too numerous to count. Let me just show you a few, just so we understand the weight of wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions, ideas have consequences. 1924. New York Tribune newspaper in America said the missing link had been found. Oh, sweet. Where? In Australia. Still alive. The Australian Aborigines, they were the living missing links. And because of this popular notion at the time, many scientists from around the world went to Australia and dug up Aboriginal graves to take their bones and put them on display as proof for evolution. And then some even went to the extent of herding, and herding up and killing the Aboriginal people dumping them off cliffs, getting them in the swamps and shooting them, and then taking back their bodies and boiling off their skin and their flesh and putting their bones on display. Why not? They're not really human. They're an ape man. They're a transition. And by the way, some of those bones are still on display in museums around the world right now. 
1904, Odabinga at the St. Louis World's Fair, he's brought as a slave, brought to America, put on display as some sort of ape man in the St. Louis World's Fair, later on sold to the Bronx Zoo. He was put on display, made to live with the monkeys in the monkey house at the Bronx Zoo, became one of the most popular attractions at the zoo at the time, as proof for evolution. And in this book, Mein Kampf, Hitler loved evolutionary philosophy. He was not a Christian, by the way, in case you bought that false idea. He loved evolutionary thinking. And uh, he said many things in this book that reflect that. One quote would be this. Uh, Nature does not desire the mating of a weaker with a stronger individual. She does not desire the blending of a higher with a lower race. You can't blend the higher blood with the lower blood. Nature doesn't like that. During 1936, you had the Olympics over in Berlin. Jesse Owens, the American athlete, was winning all these different uh, races. And Hitler said, it's not fair to make my men run against that animal. But that's consistent with his worldview, by the way. We see this all the way through. He said this, I have the right to exterminate an inferior race that breed like the vermin. By the way, quick little pause. This is only too far off track, but let me just throw this out there. A little nugget to think about. If evolution is true, how could you argue he was wrong? First of all, if there is no God, there are no moral absolutes. It's just about your opinion. And Hitler liked killing people. It's just his opinion is what he liked to do. How can you stop him? Would you be that intolerant to stop him? That's his joy. There are no absolutes if there is no God. You got that problem. Second problem was this. Hitler thought he was doing humanity a favor. In his mind, he was getting rid of the weaker races so we could evolve to bigger, better things. He thought he was making the tough decisions because he's doing the right thing for humanity. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying all evolutionists believe this. Not at all. I'm just saying that is the logical conclusion of that worldview if you follow it through to its logical end. Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. Ideas have consequences. And by the way, don't harp on Hitler too much because the movement started actually way before that. Even in America, we had something called eugenics happening for a really long time. And Hitler borrowed a lot of his ideas from the eugenics movement that was in the West, including in America. Eugenics is the idea of self-directed evolution. We can guide our own evolution. It was really popular in the early 1900s, really well-funded in our schools, in our colleges, really well-funded, had whole departments based on this, supposedly based on many areas of science. Uh, many people bought into this. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the founder of Kellogg's Cornflakes, he said this. We have new races of horses and cows. Why should we not have new and approved race of men? We can guide our evolution. But how do we guide our evolution? We're not going to just kill people off. They had a different idea. Let's just sterilize the ones we don't like so they can't breed. And they thought other ones breed and guide our own evolution the way we see fit. And so because of this line of thinking, literally in 1907, Indiana enacted the first sterilization law. 30 states followed suit not long after. 60 to 70,000 people during this time frame in America were forcibly sterilized for all sorts of issues. Ethnicities, yes, darker skin tone, particular eyes, you couldn't see well. I've got bad eyesight. I wear contacts. Anybody else? All right, I would have been sterilized at the time because I couldn't see far away. All sorts of things related to that. Uh, but a lot of it dealt more with ethnicity. Margaret Sanger, Sanger was a big part of this movement. She said the goal of her, society, of her organization was to keep a fit nation to protect us from the biggest peril that we faced, which is different ethnic groups making us less evolved, more or less, is what she said. She went on to say this in a different quote. The mass of ignorant Negroes still breed carelessly and disastrously from the portion of the population least intelligent and fit and least able to rear their children properly. 
That's your founder of Planned Parenthood. Some would say, okay, but surely those ideas have gone away, right? Well, not necessarily. Frederick Osborne, part of the movement, said this birth control and abortion turn out to be the great eugenic advances of our time. Ideas have consequences. Also, if you look at what's being taught in our schools at this time, early 1900s, this is an American textbook from that time used in American classrooms that said this, at the lowest stage of human mental development are the Australians, the Polynesians, the Bushmans, the Hottentots, and the Negro tribes. Quotes like this one, again, an American classroom textbook uh, throughout the West, not just America, said this. An English traveler said, I cannot consider the Negro to be a species of man because then I'm allowing the gorilla into the family. In our textbooks. This textbook goes on to say, from a missionary who called the ape-like Negro tribes far below, they stand far below unreasoning animals. Or maybe something like this. I graduated high school in 1995. And uh, I saw stuff like this before I graduated. Um, there's just five races uh, of men at the time. And, of course, the highest type of all would be the Caucasians, the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. And they would have something like this in the textbook. I still remember seeing this. Different racial groups, Caucasoids, Mongoloids, Negroids, Australoids, different variations of that. Anybody else remember seeing some of that back in the day? It was in those textbooks. It really was. And here's what's interesting about all that. We could go on. It's, I get it. It's heavy. It's depressing. I understand um, but here's what's interesting. Because of the advances in modern-day science, even today most secular scientists are saying this is absolute garbage. It's amazing. We did the, uh, the first draft of the human genome back in the year 2000, I think it was. So we put it together, Dr. Venner, who kind of guided this process. They put all their data together, the first draft of the human genome. They said, oh, my goodness, we found something that's going to blow your minds. They called a big press conference. They said, based on all what we've done, our research, we've identified this. There's only one race, the human race. <laughs> Welcome to Genesis chapter 1. I could have saved them a lot of money and a lot of time. Just read your Bible. It's right there. It's really not that hard. This will blow your mind. This is so cool to look at. Do you realize, according to modern research, that the difference between any two people in this room, in this state, in this world, is just 0.1% of our DNA. Every single person on planet Earth, genetically speaking, is 99.9% .9 genetically identical. How cool is that? There is just one race. And there's so many other things I could show you. But because of this sort of stuff, here's the thing. Most secular scientists are saying stuff like this. You look at the bottom. Based on our research, labels used to distinguish people by race have little or no biological meaning. Different cultures, sure. Different race, no such thing. Just one race, the human race. And to that, I give a hearty amen. Let's throw this term racist in the trash where it belongs. The Bible only speaks of the good race, running the good race. There's one human race. And here's the thing. I praise God for what's happening in our culture as far as that goes, the change in the mindset from the secular culture, secular scientists. That's good. Praise God. But here's my question to us Christians, to us, the church. Where were we when all this was going down? Why did not the church, and some did, mind you, some Christians did, and praise God for those, but why didn't the church as a whole in America, throughout the West, in the early 1900s on, why didn't we stand together and say, no, 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 according to God's word, all of mankind is made in the image of who? God. Therefore, every single person has equal inherent value and dignity based on their understanding of this word. We all come from Adam. There is just one race. And by the way, that's why we're all sinners. You need Jesus to last Adam get saved. 
Why didn't we do that? Because so many Christians had compromised with the secular thinking of our day, embraced evolutionary thinking in millions of years. They had no idea how to answer the question. So what did they do? And we see the results today. Might we stand on God's word and defend the faith in God? If we do so, I mean, we have the answer every person needs, the gospel of Jesus Christ, based on the truth of God's word. And see, if we stand on God's word, we've got some really great answers. This is so cool to see. I love doing this part of this talk because another part says, this part's really, really fun. If we all come from Adam and Eve, then how do we explain these different skin colors around the world? Hold up. Different colors or different shades? Are we really red, yellow, black, and white? Am I white? People get scared. They get really nervous. <laughs> no. I mean, I'll say it like this. Am I white like the background around my face? No. I'm a lighter shade of brown. And actually, during the summer, I tan really well. Praise God. If I, go out, if I get some sun, I get really dark, all right? I get a darker shade of brown, all right? But no, I'm a lighter shade of brown. This guy labeled black. Is he actually black? No, he's a darker shade of brown. Actually, the rules that we pretty much all have the same skin color, genetically speaking. It's mostly based on a pigment called melanin. It's a brown pigment. Some people have more. Some people have less. You got more darker toned brown. You got less lighter toned brown. Different shades of brown. Same color. Isn't that cool? People say, okay, but okay, that makes sense. But then how come certain people groups only produce one certain tone of skin? Why is that these produce darker tones over here and lighter tones over here? Well, to understand that, let's do a quick review of a genetics lesson we did earlier on. Because the Bible is clear, animals do change. There are changes within people as well. We're made according to their kinds, right? Dogs, dogs, cats, cats, people, people, tons of variation. So we agree animals change, people change, but they say the same kind. But how do we get these variations in our world today? And by the way, modern science is finally catching up to this. It's really kind of cool. One quick little footnote here. Uh, according to modern scientific research, they have found out that all dogs today go back to something like a wolf around a few thousand years ago. They're finally catching up. I love it when that happens. So what they're saying is basically something like this over time gave rise to these, to these, to these, and eventually somehow even to these. Some might say, but how can that lead to that? <laughs> we know what that looks like. That's a dog, all right? We don't know what that looks like. <laughs> or that. Or that. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> and some will say, isn't that evolution? No, that's a downhill process, all right? That's a loss of genetic information. That's right. If you lose enough information, you get the poodle. Pretty sad. <laughs> and some will say, well, wait, didn't God make poodles? Well, no, God made the original dog kind. They called everything very good. So, no, God did not make poodles. Actually, poodles only exist because of sin. You realize that? <laughs> because they're full of mutations, which are a result of the curse. So poodles are a great example of a sin-cursed, mutated world. That's what they are. Just throwing it out there. Some get sad and say, wait, Brian, won't poodles be in heaven? Well, there's no sin in heaven. So that kind of answers that question right there. <laughs> I don't hate poodles. All right. It's, it's just fun. Don't write letters. <laughs> oh. 
But again, I gave this analogy earlier, so I won't give it again. But we see so much variation within the dog kind and the cat kind because of the amazing amount of information inside living things. The numbers are just mind-boggling. And then, of course, we talked about how we see variations of dogs, right? Population builds up. Population spreads out. Different combinations of genes will survive better in different environments. We talked about that earlier. So dogs with long hair do better in the colder environments. Dogs with short hair better in the hotter environments. And through this, we get tons of variations of dogs. And so... Here's the thing. The key to getting these distinct variations within the population is to get isolated gene pools. Spread out the dog population, get isolated gene pools, where certain traits will become dominant in different places and take over that particular population. So the key was simply this, to isolate the gene pool, split it up, and get isolated pockets of these gene pools where certain traits become dominant and take over the population. Can anybody remember an event in human history where the human genome got split up into isolated pockets Tower of Babel, right? Exactly right. Guys, this history answers this fundamental question in a really great way. Because of man's sin, right after the flood, about 100 years later, they're already rebelling. God splits the people up, gives them different languages, spreads them out all over the world. And this gives you isolated people groups. You're going to be isolated for a couple of different reasons. This leads to isolated genetic pools. You're isolated because, well, you're isolated by geographical means. You're kind of stuck in your new area. There's no planes, trains, or automobiles. You're going to stay in that area. Plus, you're isolated linguistically. You will marry someone who speaks your same language, right? It's going to be a wise thing to do. It's what they're going to do. You'll get isolated gene pools. And in those isolated gene pools, certain traits will become dominant and take over those different populations. And that's why we see distinct skin shades and distinct eye shapes really not hard to understand biologically, genetically speaking. Just get the isolated gene pools, not hard to do. And modern science is catching up to this. Recent research pointed out that it looks like the human genome began to rapidly diversify less than 5,000 years ago. Can you say Tower of Babel, <laughs> right? And then you look underneath, it's also interesting, they made this observation that uh, it looks like the human genome is degrading over time, not getting better. That's called the second law of thermodynamics, consistent with observation, real problem for evolutionary thinking. Also, a couple other cool things I'll point out very quickly. Uh, you can trace, uh, ooh, hello, you can trace mitochondrial DNA in females, from one female ancestor to another, from daughter to mother, so forth down the line. You can do this to, uh, to a common female ancestor. You can trace mitochondrial DNA to a common female ancestor, to all females today. And if you just assume that humans are related to humans, no apes involved, and assume it's an average mutation rate, we can trace that mitochondrial DNA to a common female ancestor, to all females today, who lived around 6,000 years ago. You can do the same thing with the Y chromosome in males who lived around the same time. So cool to see. And some will say, okay, well, that makes sense. But then, you know, what shade then were Adam and Eve? And again, notice we're talking about shades, not color. If I can encourage you with this, I try to do it myself all the time. Let's change our language. We're different shades, not different colors. We're different people groups, not different races. We are all colored people. If you're not colored, you're dead. <laughs> all right? And uh, we're all related. So what skin shade were Adam and Eve? Well, most likely they would not have been light, all little A's and little B's, because that'd be the same thing over and over again, nor very, very dark, all big A's and big B's. Most likely they had a nice middle brown with a good combination to produce multiple variations, even in one generation. And if they did indeed have 56 different kids, how exciting would that be? You would never know what you're going to get next. It's so cool, right? All right, Eve, here we go. 
<laughs> See, we get this time. I mean, it'd be, it'd be really cool. And uh, some say, that, that seems crazy. Well, actually, we see the same sort of thing today when the information is available. A couple examples, really neat. Here's a set of biological twins. You heard me correctly. Biological twins. The mother was Jamaican. The father was German. Now, someone did ask me one time if they're identical twins. Just, sometimes it's better not to speak. Amen. Just let it go. Another set of biological twins. Another set of biological twins. There they are, just a little bit older. Beautiful families. This was really, really cool. This is parents who had two sets of twins. Notice the variation in both sets of twins. In just one generation, if the information is available. It's not that hard to understand, genetically speaking. Well, this one's a fun example. Look at this one. Uh, here are some Australian Aborigines, and this is really them, and it's really their hair. It's pretty wild. Now, they look like they're about to stab somebody for taking their picture. <laughs> but... <laughs> Anyway, you see that the variation is there. Yeah. And so, hey, we covered a lot. I want to show you a little video to kind of summarize all that information. It's a nice little video, again, from Check This Out. It kind of summarizes all this. Really well done. Great teaching tool. Here you go. I hear this one a lot. How can there be so many races in the world if we are all descendants of Adam and Eve? Well, check this out. First off, let's talk about the word race. Sometimes when people use the word, they mean supposed races of people who have evolved at different times, rates, and in different locations. That's not true. Of course, the word race is also a term we use to distinguish between groups with different physical traits, namely skin color. But are there really different races? Take a gander at Acts 17.26, where it is written that God, from one man, made every nation of men. It's clear then that the Bible teaches that there is one race, the human race. The Bible is also clear that all people on the earth are descendants of Adam and Eve who were created by God. Check Genesis 1:26-28. Easy enough. God created two people in his image, male and female, and told them to increase in number. So, Adam and Eve are mom and dad of the human race. Then, their children had children, and those children had children, and so on and so forth for many generations until, according to Genesis 6-9, the world's population was reduced to eight people who were protected inside an ark during a global flood. And those eight people later walked off the ark, and according to Genesis 9.19, from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Oh, wait a second. What do I mean scattered? Well, jump over to Genesis 11, and let's talk about an event known as the Tower of Babel. Basically, because of the sinful actions of the descendants of Noah, the Lord confused their language and scattered them from there over all the earth. That's pretty clear and concise. Okay, so we've got lots of people who were descendants of the eight folks who came off the ark, and now they have been scattered all over the earth. That explains that we are still one race and that different groups of people ended up in different locations. But how do we get a bunch of different colored people if we are all one race? Well, follow along. This, of course, is a simplified explanation, but the basic principles are true. We all have a pigment in our bodies called melanin, which, depending on different variables, produces different shades of the one main skin color we all possess. Several genes control the amount of melanin produced and thus the variability in the skin shade. In fact, it's easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin shade variability in just one generation, as we'll see in just a moment. Time for a quick genetics lesson. DNA is the molecule of heredity that is passed from parents to children. A child inherits 23 chromosomes from each parent. Each chromosome pair contains hundreds of genes which regulate the physical development of the child. However, to illustrate basic genetic principles pertaining to the topic, we'll just talk about two genes, the genes that control the production of melanin. So, let capital A and capital B symbolize versions of the gene that code for large amounts of melanin, 
while little a and little b code for small amounts. Got it? Easy. Check this out. Take a look at the upper left. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B genes, and mom contributes capital A, capital B genes as well. Together, they will produce a child with capital A, capital A, capital B, and capital B. This is a kid with a lot of melanin, and thus he will have very dark skin. Easy to see. Here's the bigger point, though. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B, and mom contributes little a and little b. Well, the child's skin will be middle brown shade, the combination of capital A, little a, and capital B, little b, which, by the way, represents a majority of the world's population. Not only that, but if each parent is capital A, little a, capital B, little b, the combinations that could be produced in their children could result in a very wide range of skin shades in just one generation. So... Since Adam and Eve were the first people ever, it makes sense to conclude that God placed in them a combination of genes that could produce all different shades of skin we see. Those same combinations would be present in Noah and the seven other people who boarded the ark. And because God dispersed people at the Tower of Babel, he dispersed the population, thereby isolating gene pools in the different people groups. Over time, different cultures formed in different locations with certain features like skin shade becoming predominant. And here we are today. And since we all go back to Noah and his family, it makes sense that we are all different shades of brown. One race, multiple people groups, just like the Bible teaches. Simplified for sure, but enough said. Did you get all that? Yeah. It's run it, but you get the idea. But again, it comes back to this. There are different cultures, no doubt, but there is just one race. So maybe we should change some of our kids' songs just to be consistent. Even the children's ones, you know, Jesus loves the little children. All the children in the world, red, yellow, black, and white. Maybe we should change it. Just saying. Maybe how about shades of brown, dark to light? They are precious in his sight. Because that's really what it is. Different shades of brown. We're all shades of brown. Also, some other really cool confirmations of this, uh, the Tower of Babel, this event, and other things that we see in history. For example, of the thousands of languages all around the world, most language experts agree can trace all those languages back to around 80 to 90 original root family languages. Number 80 to 90 fits really well the number of the number of families that were dispersed at the time of the Tower of Babel. Really cool how that works out. And as they spread out all over the world, at this time, with their new languages, they also took with them their building projects. And this is why all over the world we find similar uh, structures like ziggurats, mounds, and pyramids. It's like the people got together and got the same idea and then spread out and built their own version of it in different places all over the world. It's also why we find over 300 flood legends all around the world that sound a whole lot like Genesis. Amazing confirmation of the event. And it's also why pretty much every single culture around the world who's kept track of this can trace one of their, they can trace their family trees back to one of Noah's sons. Now, this is just cool. A couple of examples really quickly. The Irish people trace their genealogy back to Noah's son, Japheth. Of course, back to Noah and eventually Adam. Uh, the of people of China, they trace their family tree back to Noah, which is impressive. But then they take it to the next level. They trace their family tree all the way back to dirt. They're as old as dirt, <laughs> which is awesome and does seem to have a biblical reference because Adam was made from the dirt. Exactly right. And then, of course, we recognize we stand on God's word. We see it confirmed time and time and time again. Now, a couple of quick things before we wrap up this session. A couple of common questions that come about as we talk about this stuff from a biblical perspective. Some would say, OK, but wait a minute. What about the curse of Ham? You ever heard about that? I mean, you might have uh, the idea is that, you know, the curse of Ham was the origin of the Negroid characteristics. And that's what some have claimed. Well, some people do teach this, but it's not in the Bible, not even close. Now, Mormon doctrine taught it for a really long time. It's about the late uh, 1950s. Those in Mormon doctrines, they said that uh, 
the circumstance in which Ham was cursed, that's the origin of the Negroid characteristics for Cain, actually. Uh, not in the Bible, mind you. Also, Jehovah's Witness taught this up until about 1929. The curse that Noah pronounced upon Canaan was the origin of the black race, they say. And, of course, that's what they say, but it's not in the Bible. Now, they've changed that since then. But what's the Bible say about the curse of Ham, as some have called it? Well, if you look in the Bible after the flood, you have Noah. He drinks too much wine. And, of course, his son Ham sees his father's nakedness. Noah wakes up, and he's pretty upset about that. And he wakes up, and he says, Cursed be... Who? Canaan. Doesn't even curse him. He curses Canaan. And he says, you will be a servant of servants to your brethren. You shall serve your brothers. They will do better than you in life. That's it. First, it wasn't on Ham. It was on Canaan, Ham's son. Why can't be dogmatic? Maybe it's the idea of sin being passed down from father to son if you don't change your ways. That could be the idea. But uh, the general, the main point is simply this. This verse has nothing whatsoever to do with skin tone. Nothing. Not even close. And then... That leads us to this really big question, which takes on a very interesting light when you get to the end of this talk. Well, if this is all true, then what about interracial marriage? Stop and think for a moment. One race, no such thing. We're all related. No such thing as interracial marriage. Different cultures, sure. Do you need wisdom if you marry someone from a different culture? Yes, not saying that at all, but there's just one race. No such thing as interracial marriage. Why? Because there's only one biological race. And some say, yeah, but wait, what about, you know, Corinthians where it says, don't be unequally yoked with who? <laughs> Unbelievers. You see, biological fact, there is one race. True. Spiritual fact. There are actually two races. The difference between the races, well, it all deals with the direction they are racing. <laughs> some are running towards the light. Some are running towards the darkness. And if we look in the Bible, the prohibition against interracial marriage in the Bible has always been spiritual. Even in the Old Testament. You say, prove it. Be glad to. You look in the Old Testament, we see that Rahab, who was a Canaanite, married an Israelite, and it was not a problem. Why? Because she hid the spies. Why? Because their God was the one true God. Their God was her God. She was of the same spiritual heritage, same spiritual race. Ruth, a Moabite, detested by the Israelites. She married Boaz. Huh. Okay. So wait a minute. So she's a Moabite. They hate them. But why was Ruth okay? Why did... Why is it okay? Well, remember Ruth, she told uh, Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She worshiped the same God, same spiritual heritage. Therefore, no problem. Same God. It's always been spiritual, never physical. Also, think about it. Both of these ladies are in what very important lineage? Jesus. He's a savior for all people. Because there is just one race. That's why it's called the last Adam. So think about it. As we kind of begin to wrap this up a little bit, which one of these impending marriages does the Bible say do not do? Would it be A, where it says non-Christian and non-Christian if you can't read it, or B, Christian and Christian, or C, non-Christian and Christian? C, 
See, see, see again. That's the one that says do not do. If you are a Christian, you are married, you are to marry a believer. You will not find missionary dating in the Bible. It's nowhere. It's just not there. All right. We have to find someone who believes the same way. Why? That way, if you think about it, according to the Bible, marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ the groom, the church is bride. How Christ laid on his life for the church. And he paints a picture of the gospel with marriage. And the point of two believers coming together is that you become one flesh. And God uses both of you in a greater way for his glory through the proclamation of the gospel through your unified lives. As a picture of the gospel. That's the purpose of marriage. That's why you marry a believer. That's hard to show if it's an unbeliever and a believer. Also, what about the kids? You want godly offspring. You need two godly parents. Parenting's hard enough. Amen? I'm learning that, all right? But pray. it's also a blessing. But Again, godly offspring, godly marriage for the glory of God. And so let me just get, I'm going to share a little message with some of you. Some of you look like you're in dating age. Maybe think about you know, who you're going to date, how you might find a spouse. Uh, let's be sure we get our priorities straight about what we're looking at when we're looking for a spouse. It's okay to be attracted to someone and think they're good looking. And that's fine. That's, all, that's nothing wrong with that. But if that's our only requirement and that's all you're looking for, and that's how you're basing your decision on who you date and who you marry, I got two words for you that are going to change your life. You ready? I hope you're ready. Two words. Gravity wins. I don't care who you are. Gravity wins. And some of the younger girls will say, I don't want to get old and wrinkled. That sounds gross. You got another option. Die. That, those are your two options. It really is. And guys, if we base our attraction to someone simply on their physical appearance, that's going to change. But if we base it on the heart and their pursuit of Christ, similar to my pursuit as well, that will not change. And God will use it for his eternal glory. I heard it put like this. I just stole this illustration. I don't share it with you guys because it's, it's just good. pastor from Texas, he said, this is how you find uh, a spouse, spiritually, godly, in a good way. Here's what you do. He said, you run after Christ. Everything you have. Jesus, running after you. And then what you do, he said, from time to time, is you look around. See who's running with you. And you wave at him. And you keep running. <laughs> and he says, after you run for a while longer, look again because some will have fallen away. And as you look back, you see him there. You wave again. And they may run up over to him. Hey, what's up? <laughs> And you keep running towards Christ. And as you keep running towards Christ, if this person is staying with you the whole time, you're both running towards Christ together. Maybe after a while you look at each other and say, hey, you want to do this thing together? And you become one flesh. And God uses marriage for his glory. Because that's what it's all about. God using you to glorify his name in a mighty, powerful way. Let's be sure we get our perspective straight. Let's look on what matters. Get past genetics, things like hair color, eye shape skin shades. Let's get our priorities in check. Let's look at what God looks at, the mind, the heart, the needs, the eternal spiritual condition of the people we are engaging. Not their skin tone, not their eye shape. Let's be like our Heavenly Father who said this to Samuel. He sent Samuel to the house of David to find the next king. Samuel gets there and sees some of David's brothers and they're all in good shape, 6'3", 6'4", they're you know, ripped or whatever. And he says, wow, man, that, that's got to be the next king. God, look at him. And God said this to Samuel, I rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? Heart. 
Let's be like our Heavenly Father and look at the heart, recognizing we are all made in the image of God. That's why we all have equal, inherent value and dignity. That's why we're all sinners and need a Savior called the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we stand on God's word. We give answers to give the answer, Jesus. So lots of good stuff to help you reinforce this idea and share the idea with others. A book on this that's really good, One Blood, One Race, done by Ken Ham and Pastor Dr. Charles Ware. Really well done resource on this issue. If you want more, you want to share these ideas. The Answers books will deal with these issues. What about the eight men? What about cavemen? Different name for the same thing. What about the different people groups, different characteristics? You'll find those chapters in those books and in my book as well. You can check all those out. Again, if we ran out of something, you can back order it and we'll ship it for free and still get the conference special to take advantage of that. If you want to dive a little bit deeper, there's a great DVD by Bodie Hodge, another speaker and writer, uh, called The Tower of Babel. And this one, if you like, if you like graphs and tracing family trees and the engineering mindset, he's an engineer by trade. This is really cool. He traces pretty much every single people group around the world back to one of Noah's sons. It is so cool. It's a little bit more technical, but it's really, really good. So you get a chance, you can check that one out. And what about the eight men? Again, Dr. David Minton, he is fantastic. He's got a great sense of humor, really informative, really easy to understand. So well done. I encourage you to check that one out. I mentioned this one earlier, but it's fantastic. All right, what about the genetics of Adam and Eve? It confirms the Bible, why it's important. Dr. Purdom does a phenomenal job there. And, of course, again, if you like the piffy quick answers we talked about here today, we've done, then you'll get those in the quick answers book. You can back order those as well. Again, Take advantage of that. The curriculum has a talk on one blood, one race, like we did today from Ken. Similar talk, similar information. You can do that in the study if you're doing it on your own later on. Don't forget about the You Choose special and the magazine special going on. We will be here tomorrow, do a couple talks in the morning. Resources will be available then as well. But if you won't be here, take advantage of that now. And, of course, we've got the history charts and so forth to trace human history that we are indeed all one blood. We're all one race. So any other questions later on, catch me here if you get a chance. Love to chat with you. If I can help in any way, again, that's why I'm here to serve the body of Christ. Tomorrow we'll come we'll talk about how we put all this together and use it to share the gospel. Because, again, that's what it's all about. Using all this information to give answers to share the gospel. How do we do that? What's that look like? How is it effective in a culture like ours? We will see that tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know, I say that word. After a talk like this, it takes on just a little bit different meaning in my mind. <laughs> of course, we're all made in your image. We recognize that. But, Lord, what a beautiful thing that um, for every person in this room who has called you Lord and has called you Savior, you are our Heavenly Father. No matter your, our skin shades or our different eye shapes or our different backgrounds, if we have called Christ Lord, we have become the part of the family of the king. Say by the blood of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, how God became flesh to pay our debt. Unbelievable. God, what an amazing truth that when you paid that debt on our behalf, you not only justified us, you not only took on the wrath of God in our place. Therefore, we can stand before God righteous as we wear your righteousness, a double imputation. You took our sin. You took God's wrath. We got your righteousness. Oh, man. Only God could do that. But yet, maybe if I could dare say even the more glorious truth, that for those who have accepted Christ as Savior, it's not 
if I can use the word merely justification, but we have been adopted. Lord, if it was just to be a servant, it'd be more than we ever deserve. If it was just to avoid hell, it'd be more than we ever deserve. But you didn't stop there. You offer a seat at the table of the king in the family of God to every person who will repent and put their faith in you. What an amazing, powerful truth. Only you could do something so miraculous, so incredible, so beyond us. God, I pray as we leave here, we will again recognize that we are one blood, one race. Every person is made in the image of God. Every person has value, but also recognize there are two spiritual races. And there are those who are right now destined towards hell. They need to get saved. And God, help us not to be comfortable in this world. Remind us this world is Motel 6. We are just passing through. And that we will just not get comfortable here, but we focus on preaching your word, giving answers, sharing the answer because people are lost. They need to get saved. That they would be adopted into the family. We could celebrate with them in that adoption as we glorify you, our heavenly father, our heavenly king in eternity. What an amazing privilege that you would use us, decorated dust, to accomplish your eternal, infinite, awesome will. May you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.